Hello again, and welcome to the Being Whole podcast. Today, I sit down for a really important conversation with Dr. Kristen C. Eccleston about being a neurodiverse woman, the benefits of therapy, and what it's like being a mental health advocate for youth. Kristen, aka the Neurodiverse Teacher, is an education consultant currently living and working in the DMV area. Her areas of focus as an educational consultant are K-12 and corporate mental health and neurodiversity engagement. In 2022, Dr. Eccleston was selected as one of the Woman Lead Magazine Leaders Shaping Women's Entrepreneurship Future. In August 2022, she participated in season five of The Blocks, the largest competition TV show on the planet for startups. Dr. Eccleston holds a Doctor of Education in Mind, Brain, and Teaching from John Hopkins University. When she isn't working to advance mental health and neurodiversity in the education and corporate setting, Dr. Eccleston loves spending time with her family and taking on new and exciting adventures. I know this episode will help validate and inspire many people who listen, so let's waste no more time and get this started. Hello, thank you again for being here. I'm so excited for you to just share some pieces of your story, talk to us a little bit about what you have going on personally or professionally. So why don't we just start there? Give us a little bit of an insight as to who you are and what you do and What's brought you to this point? Oh, I love that. I feel like it could be a little bit of a loaded question. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, my name is Dr. Kristen Eccleston. I like to go by the neurodiverse teacher, or at least that's the brand name that I go under. And, and I don't even know how I came up with that or why I came up with it, but it just kind of stuck one day and, and seemed, seemed to fit in the fact that I am neurodiverse and I was a teacher for a long time, but um, to answer your question, who am I? Where have I come? Where? What is? How did I get to where I'm now? Is a good question. So I'm always very straightforward and upfront with people that I'm very ADHD. Um, I officially got diagnosed when I was 30, and that was a while ago. So I won't say how many, but a while ago when I was 30, and it was kind of a game changer for me. I think I had always suspected that I was ADHD, but it kind of helped my life make a lot more sense. At the time, I was a special education teacher. Uh, I had become a special education teacher because I absolutely hated school growing up. Again, makes sense for that ADHD piece. Um, it wasn't that I was awful at school, but I definitely had areas where I succeeded and I definitely had areas where I did not. And you definitely feel like something is wrong with you when you're seeing your peers be successful. So I definitely had the very stereotypical challenges that come with somebody who is ADHD, but didn't know that they were ADHD. Um, same thing when I went off to college, I went off a semester behind everyone else because I didn't get into the college I wanted to go to. So I waited to spring semester to be able to go. And, and that was hard. But again, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had challenges that I just didn't know and self-confidence issues that came with not knowing that I had some of those challenges. And, and the funny thing is too, if I could get in a time machine and go back and tell high school me that, you know, you'd have a doctorate degree and you'd be doing all these things. I think high school me would be like, uh, what? There's no possible way. <laughs> yeah. Cause I really didn't think that I was capable of a lot of that stuff, but fast forward to, I don't know, I guess about eight years ago, before I left being a special education teacher, I had a really interesting opportunity to create a program specifically for students with mental health needs. And I, I got so into it in sparse, just kind of like the understanding the psychology and like, why is this happening to so many kids and how are kids not being identified sooner? Like, why is it getting to the point where it's so intensive? 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I went back to get my doctorate so I could specifically look at research in mental health in the education setting. And that's when the light bulb in my head started to finally go off of like, wait, maybe I'm a little bit more capable than I thought I was. Maybe I can do things that I didn't realize I could. Um, but unfortunately, during my time of finishing up my doctorate, the pandemic hit. Um, I pretty much had this period of time where like everything that could go wrong went wrong. My mom had throat cancer. Um, I had a teacher that I oversaw who made some poor choices with a student. I had a student go full-blown schizophrenia and was threatening to hurt all of us. I fell down a flight of stairs. I was in a boot. Like, I mean, literally it was like everything that could go wrong goes wrong at the same time. But I also felt like it's as much of as a bad mental space that that put me in at the time, it was also the universe's way of kind of saying, hey, we need to redirect. Because yeah. I, I thought I had it all planned out, right? I'm going to go get my doctorate. And I'm going to keep working up the ranks of the school system that I work for. And, that, and then I'll retire from there. And I think the universe had a different plan for me. And it took me about two and a half years of a lot of therapy and kind mm-hmm. of really kind of rediscovering myself until I finally got to where I am now so to answer your initial question but um and now i'm at a point where i love what i do i I work education advocacy so i work specifically with families of students with mental health needs who feel like the school system is not providing them what they need Mm -hmm. i design specialized programs for school systems like the one that i had previously done um, for students with mental health needs Uh, I speak, I I do trainings on mental health and neurodiversity, especially in the workplace. So it's it's a much better place than I was almost three years ago at this point in time, but it it took a lot of kind of self-discovery to get to that point. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for just sharing all of those pieces. I mean, there's so much there, you know, just even starting with the, as you said, you know, getting diagnosed with ADHD later in life, but then kind of going back and seeing those things. And, you know, too, even with the school, I think the biggest thing for me with that was the shame I always felt of feeling like I could be doing better or I should be doing better because I felt like I was like capable at a lot of things, but I just, I couldn't focus as much in the, in the way that other people could, or my brain wasn't working in the ways. And so that was such a difficult space for me emotionally and mentally struggling with that. And so then when I was finally diagnosed to around age 30, which also not <laughs> a few years back, it, it was, it was like this just shift of like, oh, here's all these things in my life that have been really hard or I've shamed myself for, or I found workarounds, you know, but it's been a challenge. And this is what helps explain that. And I think, you know, I, I'm so appreciative of the work that you do and the way that you talk about it for those reasons too. And as you know, and I love your, I love your brand label, the neurodivergent teacher. I think it's great because of course, now we are hearing more conversations about people being neurodivergent, even though of course that's been around for a very long time. But even what you're saying too about then getting to that space where you think you've finally got things figured out and you've got a plan for yourself and then the universe comes in and is like, nope, yep. not that plan. <laughs> yep. and, and it's really hard. I resonate with that. And I think a lot of people do, especially you know after the last few years. And so thank you for also bringing attention to the fact, because I myself too, I had to do a lot of therapy, a lot of self-discovery. And I just, I really want people to recognize that there's 
there's not shame in that in needing extra help and support to really work through, you know, we have dreams or goals or expectations or desires for ourselves. And even if we know things are going to work out or we can have faith or trust or what have you, that doesn't take away the disappointment and the frustration of going through it. Right. And so I think sometimes too, in some of the, too much of the toxic positivity, we're all like, everything's going to work out fine. Or, you know, everything happens for a reason, which like when you're going through stuff, I don't know about you, but like, that is actually not helpful for me to hear at all. Like I kind of want to punch people in the face and I'm a nonviolent person. (laughs) No, no, I get exactly what you're saying. And I had a therapist who I feel like put this really, really good in a good way for me to help me understand what was happening. But she ultimately, so when I had all of those things happen and I like just got to a point where I was not functioning how I used to function, I had a really hard time with that. And, and it was just because, I mean, I, I was dealing with anxiety. I was dealing with depression. I was not in a good mental space because of all the things that had happened. And what I mentioned, by the way, was only like a fraction. I mean, it literally right. was like oh, a yeah, solid sure. period of time where it was like one thing after another. And, mm-hmm. and I remember her saying to me, it's okay to grieve the old version of you. And I had never thought of it like that before. And that's really what was happening. And I think that's when I finally started to kind of click and give myself a little bit more grace and a little bit more flexibility because I wasn't who I was or mm-hmm. used to be anymore. I, I wasn't. And there's no reason to say I was, I couldn't get back to that. Or maybe I was going to become a better version of that all along. And, and I actually was talking to my husband about that recently because that meant so much to me, that idea of like, it's okay to grieve who you used to be. And he goes, but you're actually a better version of yourself. Because I was saying to him that I don't know that I have fully, even though it's been three years that I have fully gotten back to where I could do some of the things that I used to be able to do. And, and I'm talking about like executive functioning or taking on all these different things. And he goes, no, I think you're a better version because now you know what your boundaries are. Now you know what your limitations were with were prior or previously you didn't. And that's why you hit the wall and you hit it as hard as you did because you didn't know to go, whoa, 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 this is becoming too much. Or I need to step back yeah. or I need to put this boundary in place. He goes, but you know that now. So even though you don't feel like you can take on as many things, maybe that's because you have these better boundaries and these better ideas than you had previously. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I think that that was one of my biggest awakenings for myself too, after going through that period was that, okay, I, it's hard. Cause like you said, you're kind of grieving the loss of, you know, what, not only who you thought you were, what you thought you could do, but then, you know, the things that you thought you were going to do going forward or what have you, but then recognizing too, like that, that, that pace or that, that taking on all those things or whatever it was is, is what leads to the burnout or what leads to those things. And so understanding, like, I'm so much more aware of my own patterns. I'm so much more aware of my own limits. I'm so much more aware of my own triggers too, because previously I really wasn't, or I knew I would know that they were happening, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't attach it to being overwhelmed or overstimulated. I would think it was about the situation or maybe the person or whatever. Right. And now I'm like, oh no, I'm just actually overstimulated or, (laughs) or there are just too many tabs open in my brain right now or whatever it is. And I think that that's, it's really good that your husband could also give you that insight and recognize it. Cause I think too, it's, this is why I also really hope people can find ways to talk about these things and be open with relational partners or friends or family members, because when they can provide you that support and love and understanding 
it's so meaningful because we don't always see that within ourselves, right? Or we, or in, in that feedback of somebody, especially somebody who lives with you or sees you all the time to really give you that, that's so meaningful. So again, you know, it's just, it's no surprise I preach communication all the time, but I think, I think that's one of the things that we do. We tend to hold things in and we shame ourselves or we have guilt because we're worried about what other people might think of us or how it might change their opinion of us, especially when you have, like you had established yourself, you were at a certain level, you know, and you're here, you are like, I got my PhD and I've done all these things or my doctorate. And then it's almost like, you know, nobody really believes that you're not doing okay because they see you at this certain level. So really being able to express to others and get that, get that response and support back, I think is so valuable. No. And I'm glad you said that because that was something that I had to learn to express to people, even people as close to me as my mom, who I have a great relationship with. Um, when I was going through things before the, the throat cancer situation popped up and she'd be like, can you do this? Or can you, I'd have to be like, mom, I am not who I used to be. Like, I can't, like you just asking me to do these things is like shutting me down, is overwhelming me. I mean, I got to a point where I couldn't even deal with like Girl Scout group text messages type of thing. Like I had to tell them like, please include my husband on these uh, Mm because I can't look at these text messages. They overwhelm. I mean, like that's the point that I was, but I think with mental health, people just assume like, you know, I'm having a good day or I have a smile on my face, so I must be okay but I'm still so close to teetering on an edge because like I am at the time I did get diagnosed with PTSD. And it was because I had lived in this really this constant state of fight or flight for so long that even when I was not doing something or I didn't have an expectation put on me, then I would almost start to panic because what am I forgetting? What am I not doing? I should be doing something like I, I, and there's no way unless you've been someone who has experienced it, I think to really express what that feels like to someone who hasn't, because it is, it's, it is like this silent thing that you're dealing with, but it just because you're having a semi okay day, doesn't mean that you're ready to take on all the things that you used to be able to do or have people treat you the way that they used to be able to treat you. And I don't mean that in a mean or a negative way, but just like, like you can take on all these things or these different things. No, I, I think that that is such an important thing because to it's, it's so internal. Like you're saying, like I could be having a wonderful day, but then still inside be feeling like, you know, there's too many things happening or it can be one little thing then that will, you know, and, and it's so funny you bring up the text messages because sometimes it's even text messages, you know, I feel like I need to be responsive to them throughout the day because at the, otherwise at the end of the day, it's overwhelming to get so many. But if I'm responsive to them during the day, then I'm like all over the place, lose my train of thought. So really even trying to figure out how to express to people like when I'm going to respond or how I'm going to be available and the, the thing of it is too, like you living those years in that constant state of fight or flight, like mm-hmm. that's your baseline then. Yeah. And so really understanding, okay, so that's my constant baseline. And some people are only up there when they are faced with a threat or a really stressful experience. So this was something I had to learn a lot, you know, several years ago, even with my kids, like say we were getting ready for the day or, you know, whatever. And one of them would tell me like something else that we had to do for the day. And that they were almost like fearful to have to tell me when they had to add something to to the schedule last minute like that, because I, I would internally panic. And as much as I would try to like, keep cool and make sound like everything was okay. Like my voice, everything I'm like, okay, yep. We'll figure that out. Going to manage that. 
-hmm. And I'm like, oh gosh, oh God, how am I going to do this? And it's not because the thing was so overwhelming, but it's because I was already in fight or flight. So that one little thing sent me into like crisis mode. Yeah. And really being able to come back and talk with them and be like, look, this is, this is where this is. This is what this is. This isn't about you putting too much on me in this instance. It's about me, my, where my baseline is that I'm really working to reset. And I think that the thing I didn't realize before, cause I have done that my whole life is I, I never realized how exhausting and taxing that was on my brain. So yes. then when I finally reached my breaking point and of this burnout, it's like, oh, that's because my brain has been doing this in my body for so long that now, like you said, when I'm not doing it, like there is no actual, now there is, but before there was no actual point of relaxation because I'd be relaxing and instead I'd just be thinking about all the things constantly. What do I have to be doing? Where do I have to be next? And, and more so too, not only because there are so many things, but because it's like you said, the executive functioning, all of those kinds of um, spaces in my brain, just, they weren't working right. And, and even now trying to explain to people like, because that's a, that's a tricky line too, you know, with your work, with my work, it's like, you know, I want to be open and talk about these things. And then you still have people who will be like, well, how do you do this then? And it's like, okay, let's like, there are parts of my brain that still work really well, no matter what is happening. Like I've got all this knowledge that's going to come out no matter what. Right. (laughs) But it's some of these other things that come so easily to people. Like, I'm like, am I just a bad adult or what's happening to me? And it's what you're saying that overstimulation and that recognition that you're at that as a base level all the time. And people who aren't, to them, it seems intense sometimes, or it seems overwhelming, or it seems like you're frantic, or it seems, you know, there's all these perceptions that are associated with it. And recognizing too, like, I'm so grateful for us having this conversation so people can understand that this is a process. Like I can be awesome and I'm awesome in this moment, but that doesn't mean that later tonight, I might not have something that will derail me. And that is normal and that is okay. And it is okay for me to say that. And it doesn't take away from like my credibility or something. No. And I agree with you hundred percent. And I mean, I will have moments where sometimes there isn't even a trigger, like there, I'm just like, I'm great. And then all of a sudden it's just like this feeling creeps in and there wasn't any reason or email or event or anything. Mm-hmm. It's just like, and especially cause you know, it has been three years, almost uh, the end of this week will be three years since that, that period of time kind of hitched up and where I am so night and day from where I was three years ago, I still consider myself like still healing from yeah. a lot of that. Like every day is a step towards improvement and getting better and like learning new lessons and kind of like unlocking like who I am and what I, what I need to be successful. So mm-hmm. it's not this overnight journey. And awesome. I still deal with those feelings that creep in and they come out of nowhere. I could have a great day and there isn't any reason for it, but I think it's, especially if you've dealt with trauma or you've dealt with things like, I think it's mm-hmm. normal to have those feelings creep in. Yeah. I know this episode is so good. You just don't want to pause, but I won't take long. I wanted to let you know that I have two spots open for one-on-one transformation with me inside of a three-month container. We will focus on your boundaries, your relational communication, and how you can move forward in a way that helps you feel whole. DM me the word coaching on Instagram at Dr. Cassandra LeClaire to get more info on how we can work together. Now let's listen to the rest of this episode with Kristen. I, and mm-hmm. I will say for the longest time when, because I had a period of time where it's like one thing happened, I mean, literally it was like, 
one thing would happen and then like the next day the next piece of news would happen and it was just like I got to a point and I said to my therapist like I know you're not supposed to like live in this negative state all the time but like anytime I start to feel somewhat better the next thing happens and it's so I got to a point where like I was almost scared to feel better because I was so afraid that if I started to feel better then the next thing would happen. And I mean, that was a legitimate fear that I had to overcome. And, Mm -hmm. and I like to think that I have overcome it, but I would be a hundred percent lying if I didn't say that every now and then that doesn't creep in that like, okay, I'm feeling good and things are so much better. And I haven't had this like, boom, boom, boom. Is it okay to feel okay? Or am I going to have this moment where like, it all comes crashing down again. And and that it's a legitimate fear because that's what life was like for me for a period of time. I know. And I think that that's the thing you're kind of always waiting for the other shoe to drop and you don't realize that then being in that state, because then you normalize that state that you don't realize how harmful it is to you, you know, with your nervous system, with everything, you know, your mental health, because you are, it's self-protection. It's a coping mechanism, right? And you're, you know, I can't be okay right now because then the next hit will come and it'll completely derail me. So I'm just going to stay where I am anticipating it, being hyper-vigilant, being hyper-aware or whatever it is. Right. And I think it's really difficult to, again, like you said, to explain that to somebody who doesn't have that feeling, because then, you know, it, it can seem like an overreaction or it can seem like you're just, and for the long, longest time, like we, we talked about on your podcast too, like I thought I just had massive anxiety all the time. So I would go and get medicated for different things and then it wouldn't work. So then I'm like, oh gosh, what's wrong with me now? You know? And so really understanding the PTSD part of it, understanding the ways that I'm still coping with and will be healing for the rest of my life, you know, and that's the thing too. It is, and I will never be done. And just like you said, I mean, the other night, Monday, I had a great day and I was at work, a fantastic day. I got home, was sitting, doing stuff, nothing happened. And all of a sudden I just started bawling. And so I actually wrote about what you just said. I wrote myself a note because I was like, I need to talk about this. So it's really serendipitous that we're talking about it <laughs> because it, it, it is like, I want to recognize that for people. You know, we talk so much about recognizing your triggers and being able to overcome them or understanding how to calm your nervous system and somatic healing and all these things. But what about those times when there's not a trigger? And I really want people to know that that's also normal and okay. And that is going to happen. And so I think that awareness and the more that we can normalize that, then when those moments happen, they don't have to feel so devastating, you know? And so the, the only difference for me really is I still have the triggers. I still have things come out of nowhere. I still have feelings of overwhelm. The main difference is my understanding of it. Yeah. And then I don't spiral for so long and I don't yeah. go into that terrible shame cycle as much because I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to let myself. So Monday, I just let my, I, I need to cry right now. Mm-hmm. Just going to cry and let this sadness out. I'm not going to try to look at what it's about. I'm not going to try to analyze where it's coming from. I'm just going to let it be. And that is not where I would have been several years ago. You know. No. And then I agree with you in that. And I feel like there was a lot of times shame that like when you were having those feelings, you're like, what is wrong with me? Why do I feel, I shouldn't feel this way. There's no reason. And you start just like internally beating yourself up. Mm-hmm. And instead, what I like to do is kind of be like, okay, this is my feeling. Sometimes I try to like do a little root cause, like what could be the root cause of it? What could be, where's this coming from? What are my thoughts that I'm thinking right now? And if I can't do a root cause, like it's just a feeling, then I just honor and acknowledge the feeling. It's a feeling. It is what it is. It'll pass. 
and I'm going to move forward. But you're right. I couldn't have done that three years ago. Three years ago, I would have been right back into beating myself up and just escalating and, and making it more intense and being very fear oriented. So, I mean, it really had to do with a lot of like trying to overcome fear, trying to be like living in this moment and, you know, kind of telling myself like, I'm, you know, stress is going to come in life. Like you're, it, you're not going to be able to avoid it for forever, but stressing about it may be happening and then having to stress about it when it actually happens, I'm just living in stress. So why don't I wait until it actually is happening? And then I will apply the correct emotion towards whatever is happening rather than putting this energy towards something that may or may not ever happen in the meantime. But, and I know that's an easy concept to say, I had to work at that concept. It's not an easy, like just, just because someone tells you, like I really had to do the work to be able to come to terms with that. And I actually did a therapy called EMDR. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know about you. I tell people all the time that it is the worst absolute experience. I hated it of all my life, but it's the best thing you could ever do for yourself. I mean, at least that's how I, I felt about it. I recommend it to everyone, but it's not this enjoyable experience while you're doing it because for people who aren't familiar with EMDR, like you are essentially reliving your triggers over and over and over again until you get to your point where you're like, it's fine. I don't even care anymore. I've had to talk about this so much that like, the okay, it's happened. It happened in my yeah. life. And that's kind of what the therapy is doing to you. But then it does replace it with like trying to put some um, positive thoughts associated with those things. But I mean, but you yeah. do have to like really dive into the, the root cause. And it's not even if you go in for like, I'm here for this event. You have to like root cause it all the way back. So you might have like five life events that you have mm -hmm. to get through before you even get to the reason why you went into the therapy for. So yes. again, not the most exciting or wonderful experience, but it really is useful if you're someone who is really struggling with triggers. I, I agree. I couldn't agree more. And it, what it does then too, is then it takes away the, the heightened response to it, right? That's the goal. So then, you know, it's not that I won't think about those events or have the same triggers, but they don't have the same way of heightening and activating my nervous system or my emotions. And, you know, the added piece to this, of course, with us both having ADHD is that then, you know, that alone has also changed our brain. So some of our emotional reactivity and some of the ways, you know, just that regulation piece is already more difficult for us. Yeah. So then when you add in triggers and you add in trauma and you add in, you know, the PTSD component like that, it's, it's like, you feel like you're fighting against so many things. So the way I am trying to look at this too, and the way I always talk about is like, we're building your toolbox, you know? And so EMDR is something that's like in my toolbox. And, you know, for me at first, you know, I know, I know my, now about myself too. Like I personally only try to schedule therapy sessions toward the end of the day because they do kind of like wear me out or they make me think about things. And so I, when I used to have them in the morning and then I, I would try to go to work, I'd be like, oh yeah, no, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> and so even recognizing the spaces, if you can for yourself, and I know not everybody has that flexibility, but, and two, I do think one of the big benefits of the pandemic, not, you know, that sounds weird to say the benefit of the pandemic, but oh, I get it. the access that we have now to telehealth yeah. Um, that we didn't previously. So I started EMDR again during COVID and I was able to do it, um, you know, virtually. Mm -hmm. And so even, you know, some of those things then that we do have access to now that we didn't prior or that weren't as accessible before, I think that that can be helpful. But again, it's, it's normalizing that it's helping people, 
you know, realize that you're not alone in these things. And there are so many different places you can go to support. And, you know, of course, too, there's different points of access for people, but that's where even just finding the conversations that people are having. So you can really start to think about, you know, where is this in my life or how is this impacting me? Because again, I didn't, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And I had done this for so long and managed it for so long that I just thought that this was who I was, or I just thought that this was what I had to manage from now on. Like, I guess this is just what it looks like, you know? And, and so now knowing that, yes, it's hard some days and I don't always want to like do the work. Right. But a, it's a lot easier now that I've kept doing it. Cause it doesn't, you know, I understand it so much more, but also the freedom I have from feeling those, that constant pressure, those constant thoughts, or just, it, it's like this release that I, again, thought was possible for other people, but I never thought I was really going to get. And I know I'm going to have to keep working at that. Cause if I don't, if I just let it go, cause I've done that before. I've been like, I'm good. I'm fine. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh shit, not fine. Not fine. <laughs> and, and I'm also glad that there's space. Like you and I are talking very openly about this. I always try to talk very openly. And I mean, I even had someone who I worked with when this all started first happening, tell me like, do not tell anybody that this is going on. Like you don't want people will discredit you. You don't want people mm-hmm. to know about it. And I have found that the more people I talk about it, the more people are like me too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's so relieving for people. And I almost think it's more healing to know, okay, I'm not alone. Like I'm not, because I think everyone thinks, oh, mental health means that you're like, crazy or you've lost it or you're doing and that's not what Mm -hmm. mental health means it's those times where we all felt alone and abandoned and overwhelmed and we weren't allowed to talk about it because we thought people were going to misjudge us and now we're talking about it and we're realizing we're not alone and almost Mm -hmm. everybody has experienced this to some degree and it's Mm -hmm. more important that we do talk about it so that it's more normalized than this dark secret that we all have to hide Because I think that's the only way for us to get healthier as a society is if we know that this is something that we are all dealing with. Absolutely. I agree. I think, you know, as you and I have talked, like it's, I think that's how we change the world, right? Is if we have some more understanding of our own emotionality, and then we offer empathy and compassion toward others as a result of that understanding, you know, we might not all have the same experiences. Of course, we don't have all the same upbringing, but you know what? I don't know a person who hasn't experienced pain. I don't know, you know, so really being able to understand that like we all have different elements that we're experiencing. And unless we learn to talk about them in different ways, you're not going to know that. And then we don't know how to support each other. We don't know how to be kind to each other or what have you, or we're, we're taking things personally from other people or misperceiving how somebody is. And I think too, like it is much more normal, quote unquote, to have the ups and downs than it is to feel one way all the time. And honestly, if you're happy all the time, I question you. (laughs) I don't don't disagree with that statement at all. But I, and I also tell people too, like, you've got to have the lows so that you can appreciate the highs, because if you just lived on the highs all the time, then it wouldn't be exciting because you would just think that's the way life is and actually would be kind of boring. So, I mean, and I think there are lessons to learn when you're having those moments. They're not fun they're not enjoyable. It doesn't feel great. And I recognize that, but I actually, when I reflect back on everything that happened over the last three years, I I can honestly say that I'm glad because 
I now have a life that I, I wouldn't have had otherwise if I hadn't been through those things. I wouldn't understand myself to the degree that I understand myself now. You know, mm. I wouldn't have, have, have seen what I was capable of or what I could achieve. So it really stunk when I was going through it. I didn't enjoy it, but there were really some great lessons that came out of it that mm. I really think helped make me a better person in the end. So Mm-hmm. I'm grateful. And it's weird to say that, that I had to go through some of those things. No, I agree. And I think too, it's like, you know, don't pressure yourself to look for the lessons when you're going through it, just get through it and process it and get the support and help you need. And then sometimes and then that you'll reflection, realize the lessons. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that reflection and understanding can't come. And so I think too, that's part of the thing where people are in it and they're like, okay, I know there's a lesson here. I know I'm supposed to be learning something. It's like, well, now you're just adding to your own anxiety about it. Right. So really even just giving yourself space to be like, okay, this is where I am right now. And this is what I need to feel or work through or sit with or talk to somebody about. And I, I am, again, I just appreciate this conversation so much because I, I too, I think that there are more people who experience these things than not. And I want to normalize that. I want to normalize that we can be badass professional women yeah. with all this stuff. And guess what? We can still go cry on our bathroom floor later today if we need to <laughs> yes. or whatever. Right? Yes. Agreed. Agreed. A hundred percent. So all this work, obviously you've done so much for yourself personally, but I'd love for you to tell everyone also the ways that you then have taken this and you advocate for kids in schools and the ways that they need help. Cause it's just so special to me that you do this work. I feel like I'm tearing up right now, just thinking about it because I know how desperate, desperately needed your, your services are. So tell us a little bit about what you do for, for kids to help them. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a partner at a a firm called Weinfeld Education Group. I direct their social and emotional services there. And I made it very clear when I came into that company, like I just want to work with students with mental health needs. And and it looks different. I do it K through 12 and, and the need can look different, but a lot of it is school avoiders, students who have dealt with different mental health hospitalizations. And ultimately um, they need extra supports and services because School is often this one size fits all type of approach to learning. And mm-hmm. so many students don't fall into that. And a lot of people ask me, why, why do I call myself the neurodiverse teacher? Um, and also what does that have to do with mental health? And I tell people all the time, it's not mutually exclusive, but a lot of times people who are neurodiverse tend to have mental health needs because we've all been forced into this one size fits all and we're not all fit, but one size fits all individuals. And so with that comes a lot of mental health And I find that to be true with a lot of students too, who are neurodiverse, they're incredibly smart, incredibly talented students who are left feeling a lack of self-confidence, feeling bad about who they are as a learner or don't want to stand out or don't want to feel like they're special. Because unfortunately, when you're neurodiverse, I mean, ADHD, autism, sensory processing, all have the word disorder associated with its title. So everyone, you know, automatically makes assumptions that something's wrong with you. And I try to tell people all the time, like, I don't think that being neurodiverse or being neurotypical, I don't think one is better than the other. Your brain is just taking in the world differently. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. school being one of the biggest settings, but mm-hmm. societal structure settings have determined that this is the way we should all function. And neurodiverse people end up feeling left out in the cold when they're the people who really have the talents to change the world or cure cancer. But you have this kind of sense of something's wrong with me or the lack of confidence. Mm -hmm. And that's who I was when I was a teenager. And I had to spend almost all of my 20s and into my 30s finally going, wait, actually, 
I think I'm a lot more capable than I was. And I don't want that for youth. I think youth should be able to leave high school and be like, I got this, bring on it world. Like I can do this. I have the skills. I believe in myself. I believe in my talents. That doesn't mean you won't have struggles and things that you have to overcome as we've just talked about. But like, I don't think you have, should have to spend 10 years um, yeah. trying to figure out that like, oh, wait, I'm a lot more capable or I can do things that I didn't realize I could do because of all the negative messages you got from not fitting in this one size fits all. Mm -hmm. Box. So that's, that's really what a lot of my advocacy is for is trying to, until I can get it to where schools just offer a lot of these services yeah. for everyone, because the research science shows that everyone would benefit from these things, mm -hmm. not just people who are neurodiverse. Um, I'm at least trying to get kids the supports and services that they need in school so that they can be successful and hopefully not have to spend their 20s like me trying to rediscover yeah. and feel confident in themselves again. Yeah. And that's, uh, there are just so many ways that, you know, our school system, it, it's broken in so many ways, right? In terms of what, how we're really caring for kids and what, and, and, you know, any teacher you talk to, I mean, there's a reason why there's a mass exodus from the profession too, right? Because it, the answer typically is let's put more on the teachers. Let's give them more regulations or rules, or here's another benchmark that you have to follow or what have you instead of really being able to pump some money into support systems and in other, you know, programs and things like to relieve some of the pressures that they feel too, so that then they can, you know, cause you talk to teachers and most teachers really do want to, you know, teach the individual or really help each one along or, you know, be able to give that space, but, you know, their ability to do that in the current structure is really limited too, right? So really continuing the conversation of like how important this is. And as you know, I mean, you've written letters and lobbied and you continue to do so to really get that funding. And, and that's something too, where I'm, I wanna blast this episode everywhere and make sure that people know that this is something that we all can have a part in as well, you know, and to really try to get invested and involved and send some emails or send some letters, you know, because it's not, as you said, it's you know, not only for one type of person or one type of kid, so many um, children would benefit oh, from yeah. having this at the, you know, having this, this level of care and support and attention and understanding to learning styles and, you know, just the ways that we are, you know, processing information differently. A hundred percent. I mean, there's so much research to support how we should be teaching and how students learn best and how we can contribute to success, but yet we still remain using the, an old outdated operating system that was put into place 200 some years ago and we won't yep. change that and I'm just like somebody make sense of this for me please yeah me too me too I know and that's where I think like again I'm very grateful to you for your work and for your candor and just vulnerability and expressing these things because I do think that that is what it's going to take I do think that it is going to take people seeing successful people who are like, no, like I am successful, but let me tell you how much I, how, what I had to do to get here. Let me really be transparent about all the things that, you know, where I was and now think about where I could have been or the things that I could have done had I had the support or had I had that knowledge, you know, 20 years ago or whatever it is. And that's like what you're saying. You want that for those kids. I mean, I want that for them too. That's, I, I don't want anyone to have to get to the point where I did, where all of a sudden my life has to unravel and everything has to fall apart. Like truly, 
before I can look at it and have some understanding of what's going on with me. Cause that, then that's its own thing you have to get through. Right. So, you know, as you just described, so I think that, you know, the more that we can, you know, so this is my challenge, you know, Hey, all you successful, wonderful people out there, you know, start talking about some of this stuff too instead. And so we can reduce some of that stigma of what this really looks like as well. You know, and, and like you said, reduce some of the stigma of mental health and acknowledge that this is, you know, we all have mental health conditions and concerns and struggles. They just don't look the same. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Okay, so where can people find you? How can they, of course, I'll link everything in the show notes, but I just wanna hear you say it too. <laughs> Absolutely. So I am very easy to find. I have a website that is www.theneurodiverseteacher.com, all one word, or all my Instagram, TikTok handles, all that good stuff is the same. It's at the.neurodiverse.teacher. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time today and for this wonderful conversation. You know, I already can think of, I know this is going to help so many people and I'm grateful to you again, not only for your work, but for sharing the space for me. And I'm just really glad that we've also gotten to know each other and I can't wait because I know, I know we're going to keep doing more stuff. So that's happy. So thank, thank you so thank much. You. Wow. I loved this episode for so many reasons, but to sum up what we spoke about, here are a few of my takeaways. Number one, there are times when everything seems to be going wrong or against your plan, but ultimately it may be setting you up for an opportunity that you never thought was an option for you before. Number two, little things can put you over the edge after being in fight or flight for so long with ADHD or PTSD. Voicing your limits and asking for help or delegating tasks can be an option to take the weight off of you. Number four, it is completely normal to be high energy at one point of the day and then completely drained and tread water at another point of the day. Giving yourself grace and knowing that this is all part of the healing process can be helpful, even though it is hard. Number four, stress will come no matter what, but it's better to cope with it in the healthiest way you can when it happens without worrying about when and how it will happen ahead of time. Number five, getting help is more accessible than ever to help you heal from your traumas. We'll include different links below in the show notes to help you get started on your mental health journey. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I'd love to hear one of your favorite parts please send me a DM over on Instagram at Dr. Cassandra LeClaire. Have a great week.